Extraterrestrials, strange phenomena, missing persons, lost continents, myths, and monsters. We examine these mysteries to determine are they bullshit or not? Listening TV ate my dinner. This is episode five for Saturday, August twenty fifth, two thousand seven. My name is Sean, and I'm sitting here with Greg and Brooks. Hey, hey, how's it going? All right. And tonight we will be discussing some interesting conspiracies behind potential conspiracies behind movies. Uh, they're they're a little half baked. I won't lie to you, but but I think they're interesting. I think they're all completely true. In fact, I don't even call them conspiracies. We're going to call this episode The Politics of Sci-Fi. So we're finally getting the truth out. Exactly. We're cracking this nut. I'm sick of all this pussyfooting around. The truth is out there. We're going to blow right. your minds, And folks. tonight, the truth is going to be right in here. That's right. We're going to blow the doors off of it. You hear me? Sci-fi fandom. So uh, before we get into all that, because it's going to be some heavy stuff, very intellectually heavy stuff. Yeah, people might want to put their thinking caps on, take some notes. So let's give people a minute to get their notebook, their uh, notebooks and pens out, their graph paper. And uh, yeah, you... we'll we'll start with some lighter talk. Yeah, some some as, news because I hear do. there's something you were mentioning about Kevin Smith doing a TV show. What is this? Well, he's there's a show on the CW that's that's coming out called Reaper. And and what I'm hearing is that Kevin Smith directed the pilot. So is he going to be directing the show or is he just a special? Uh, from spe- what I'm hearing, I, I don't think so. And he didn't write the pilot or anything. He just directed it, which is strange to me because I always That's thought. That's kind of weird, yeah. Yeah, as a fan of Kevin Smith movies, I always thought the other way around would probably be more appropriate. Like you should probably have him write it and have someone else direct it. But that doesn't seem to work. Script. I, I think when, well, he starts, when did they, when did they ever try that? Well, he's you know when he's written scripts for movies and things, it seems like they always get dumped. Uh, you know, like well, a, because the scripts are probably bad. Like I'm not saying the man can write the Bionic Man or or you know Superman. Everyone thought because he was a comic book fan that you could get him to write these huge movies. Maybe he shouldn't be writing like a three hundred million dollar event film. But, I mean, as far as his smaller movies, he really has something there. He can write really good dialogue. He writes good characters. I just, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have somebody else on, at the helm in, in making the film, I think. So what is The Reaper? What is that? It sounds like it might be like a sci-fi horror kind of thing. It, it is. It's a horror comedy kind of thing. A horror and comedy. It, yeah, and it kind of bothers me because the concept is that there's this kid and he – his his parents sold his soul to the devil apparently when he was a child and so the devil comes collecting when he's 21 and what the devil wants is for him to go collect all of these spirits who have escaped from hell and how is this and a comedy that's, that's what i'm wondering yeah i mean well <laughs> hilarity ensues i mean what how's that a comedy so it's well, I guess how it's a, a comedy is you've got Brett Harrison is the kid, and he was in that Fox show, The Loop. He also was very briefly on that '70s show. He was on Grounded for Life. He's just sort of, you know, he plays every gooby guy in sitcoms anyway. And then the 
the devil is played by Ray Wise, who I like a lot, used to be on Twin Peaks, was also on RoboCop. I always try to track the RoboCop cast members because you never know what they're up to. Which one? Who but, was Ray Wise? Which one was he? Which one was he in RoboCop? Yeah. He was one of the guys who killed RoboCop. I don't know. Like, what well, was the guy? He's one of the, he was one of the gang of baddies. And in Twin Peaks, he was the dad. He was of the girl who got killed. So this show sounds like it sounds a little bit like my name is Earl. But instead of like going episode to episode to help people, he's going to collect a soul. It's also, you know, extremely and maybe this is how they're getting away with it. But what bothers me is it's very reminiscent of a show that was out in like 98 called Brimstone. And that show had Peter Horton who had been on uh, 30-something and that volleyball movie with C. Thomas Howell. Am I the only one who understands my filmography? I keep up with things. I've never heard of any of that. I'm sorry. None of these references matter to anyone but me. But anyway, well, the important thing is that Peter Horton was in Brimstone, which I thought was a really good movie. And that, it was a really good show. And it revolved around him. He was a cop who had, and it was very serious. He had murdered a man because the man raped his wife, and then the devil released him from hell if he would go like hunt down these these evil souls and bring them back to hell. That was the story. And and in that, John Glover was was the devil, and I liked him a lot. John Glover plays Lex Luthor's dad in Smallville. He's also done a bunch of he's done a bunch of stuff. He was the voice of the Riddler in the Batman cartoon. He was in well, Gremlins too. Well, there you go. How far back do I have to go? How much of myself do I have to reveal? I, I think I think this is sufficient. To explain who John Glover is to you. But either way, that so show is, is very good. Be... And not only did it not last very long, but Fox has yet to make a DVD set out of it, which is making me crazy. I would buy Brimstone on DVD, but still it has not happened yet. And this show seems to have the same plot, except it's sort of a 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo thing where it's supposed to be silly. <laughs> Jack the Ripper. Was he a prosperous London surgeon? Perhaps a member of British royalty? Well, a Bush team has unearthed spectacular new evidence which suggests that Jack the Ripper was, in fact, the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, well, before we, before we move on, I do have, we have a new segment that I hope we will in, incorporate from now on. But TV Ate My Dinner will try to introduce you to some films you probably have not heard of, which apparently for me is not a big deal because everything I say, no one knows what I'm talking about. But we'll try to introduce you to some movies that may have slipped through the cracks that you might like to see. And we call this segment... Movies from the Vault. And the very first movie from the Vault that I've picked out is Remo Williams. Which mm, you may remember choice. also called The Adventure Begins, but I try to leave that out because that's not how it played out. Because The Adventure began and yeah. ended right there. <laughs> the Adventure, yeah. The Adventure encapsulated in a single film. That was all. But this is an 80s action movie, and it attempted unsuccessfully to turn the Destroyer series of pulp novels into a film franchise. It's funny and cool, and it's got my man Fred Ward in it. He's a cop turned kung fu superhero, and he co-stars with Broadway star Joel Grey as his Asian mystic master Chun. This is one you just have to see, and if you have TNT or cable, I mean, you've seen it at least some point. This was a good movie. 
I don't. I feel bad because I love Fred Ward, and I like the Destroyer novels, and I thought this was a good attempt to really make a movie out of it. But but no go. Also, if you're a Star Trek fan, his girlfriend is uh, Janeway. Janeway, right. yeah. From, from uh, his, uh, his for some reason, her name escapes me right now. Kate Mulgrew. Anyway, Kate, Kate Mulgrew. Thank you. And uh, but yeah, anyway, if you're if you're that hardcore of a Star Trek fan, watch you know Remo Williams just to see Kate Mulgrew before she. You know, became Catholic. Did it big. <laughs> but yeah, Remo Williams is a cool flick. So if you got a chance, you know, it is on DVD, Netflix it, or go ahead and buy it. You can probably buy it for like $7. But that's that. And I guess we should move on to our topic. I think Brooks had a lot of strong, strong yeah. feelings about the, sci- the the politics of sci-fi in certain I th- shows. And, and not just sci-fi, just just television in general. And, and the one thing that, Pop that culture. I wanted to talk about in terms of this was the smurfs and uh if you're not old enough you might not remember the smurfs the smurfs was a cartoon that was out in the 80s it was i guess a more of a girl cartoon than a guy cartoon guys weren't really into it but i liked uh, the smurfs what are you talking about i collected smurfs really well i lived in germany it was a lot easier to collect smurfs when you live in germany but still it wasn't a girl cartoon i think we're learning a lot about about sean here well but uh, yeah, the Smurfs were these little blue creatures. They were three apples high. They lived in a little mushroom village and uh, they just had a little society and they were being chased by this wizard guy named Gargamel and he was the bad guy. So if, if you haven't seen the cartoon, you know, just bear with us and, and hopefully it'll be interesting. If you have seen the cartoon, you should know exactly what I'm talking about. Available now uh, on DVD. Well, as everything is. Is it really? Well, just in case you haven't seen it. We can get Dungeons and Dragons on DVD. I guess you can get Smurfs. Well, for many, many years, um, since I was a kid, really, I've had this theory that there are some compelling similarities between the Smurfs and communism. For the longest time, I thought I was the only one that that thought this until... Since you you were a kid, you were thinking this. Yeah. Well, you know, it was the Reagan era. It was the 80s. It wasn't unheard of to be thinking about. The communism was everywhere. To to be seeing the pinko and everything. Seeing the red menace and little blue smurfs. (laughs) Well, I I thought I was the only one for a long time until the uh, internet came around. And then I saw that there are plenty of other people that think this. In fact, there's there's an article in Wikipedia about just this. I'll post a link to it on the TV Ate My Dinner page so uh, people can check it out. It goes into this with a lot more detail than I will tonight. But for now, I'm going to give you some evidence to consider, and I'll let you guys draw your own conclusions, okay? Okay, hit it. Okay. All right. (laughs) A little enthusiasm would be nice. (laughs) I didn't know we were supposed to answer. I thought you were talking to them. (laughs) Okay. Is this going to take, what, like 20 minutes? Because I'm just going to run outside for a minute and come back. I've got a thing. Can I smoke a cigarette while you're talking about I have a gala. I have a gala. Firstly, okay, firstly, we'll start off by discussing appearance. Because this is the most obvious thing, probably. Papa Smurf, who is the leader of the Smurfs, has a bushy white beard, which resembles Karl Marx's. He also wears red, which was the stereotypical color of communism. Despite the society's communal nature, Papa Smurf does have the ultimate authority. In several episodes, when Papa Smurf is not present, the Smurf village's utopian system destabilizes entirely. The very fact that his name is Papa Smurf recalls the paternal nature adopted by the leaders of the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. Brainy Smurf 
which was, I guess, sort of his second in charge. He has round spectacles, much like Leon Trotsky. And their position in society can be seen as similar. Trotsky felt his intellectual theories of communist society were superior, much like Brainy feels about Papa Smurf, and Brainy attempts to seize power in several episodes when Papa Smurf is away. In the cartoon, Brainy was alone in his willingness to question the ideals of Smurfism. All the this other is the, this is from the Wikipedia articles. That's well, correct. this is a, an amalgam of my theories and backed up with things from the Wikipedia article. Yes, all of the other Smurfs wear the same white clothes, which is representative of the largely uniform style of attire dominant in several early periods of the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, including the Mao suit. The Smurfs live in what the Wikipedia article calls an egalitarian utopia. There is no system of monetary exchange or even barter in the Smurf village. In addition to this, Smurf identity is related to their function in society. Their individual names also happen to be their jobs, like a carpenter Smurf, farmer Smurf, and so on which parallels the importance placed upon social function versus individuality in Soviet communism. Also, they have Smurf as a suffix to their own name. This can be seen as analogous to the use of comrade. With me so far? I think maybe you lost me at that exact point. <laughs> really? <laughs> how, is, how, is making your, how is making the name of your race a verb? Similar to being a com well, no, saying comrade. This, this isn't the verb. This isn't talking about that use of it. It's just how the, that's the end of every name. I think that's more like the Hawaiians, like how they Carpenter just use aloha Smurf. for everything. Like it just means whatever. No, no, no. You see, that that's a different thing. For the kids that don't know, the Smurfs also in the cartoon, and this is something that I found irritating even as a kid, they use Smurf as a verb for pretty much everything. Like, how Smurfy? Let's go Smurf today. You know, you're Smurfing crazy. Everything was Smurf this and Smurf that. I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about their names. Well, how like, else are you going to swear on Saturday morning cartoon? <laughs> I guess. You're a Smurfing mother Smurfer. But it's like Milkman Smurf. You know, all their names are whatever their job is and then Smurf. Much like Comrade Milkman, Comrade Carpenter, something like that. You see what I mean? Oh, uh, I get that. All right. Okay. 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 So uh, are you with me, Greg? Yes, I'm with you. I'm, yeah. I All think right, crap, but go ahead. Are you with okay, me, comrade <laughs> Greg? We're almost done. Now consider the evil wizard Gargamel and his cat Azrael, which are both biblical references, as they represent the forces of capitalism. Gargamel desires to capture the Smurfs in order to turn them into gold, as the capitalistic forces want to devour socialism, as the West wanted to do with the USSR, according to Cold War propaganda. Gargamel can did. be seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go USA. USA. Yeah. USA. Gargamel can be seen. Blue. <laughs> Gargamel can be seen as a pure capitalist from a socialist perspective because he wishes to turn everything into a commodity, including the Smurfs, which are living creatures. I thought he wanted I to guess. eat them. He didn't want to eat the Smurfs. I thought he was always trying to put uh, them in a big pot. I think, from what I understood, he wanted to boil them and turn them into gold. Oh, so putting them but, in the pot made them then gold. Then again, we know now that you are the Smurf fan of the group. You're the one that collected Smurfs, so I you collect may you may be more knowledgeable than well, I am about I this. I didn't really I didn't really drill myself on the mythology of them, though. I just like the one who was in a race car, and one of them was a fireman. I didn't realize they had such a complicated <laughs> backstory. Well, if you really want to get into it, and this is Wikipedia stuff, this is this is a little bit beyond what I would say, but in Wikipedia, they, they say you, you can look at the origins of Smurfette, 
who was created by Gargamel as an evil creature to trick the Smurfs, but is changed magically by Papa Smurf into a good Smurf, and when this happens, her hair changes from black to the Aryan preferred blonde. Well, maybe just because blonde's a little hotter. I mean, Papa Smurf may be old, but he's not dead. <laughs> I mean, if you could magically change chicks around, you might make a lot of them blonde. There's literally no other female Smurfs, so at that point, I'd think they'd be happy with any hair color. If, well, that's true, too. If I, if, if I were the other Smurfs, I'd be like, Papa, could we could you, like crank out a few more females before things get rough up in this piece? Why don't we get a brunette and a blonde? Yeah. How about some redheads? I kind of prefer brunettes myself. Then society would indeed crumble. Exactly. And this isn't even taking into account the fact that the Smurfs live in mushrooms, which I'm sure you can find all kinds of hallucinogenic drug references in the show if you're looking for them. They're also not so, three apples high. I don't know where people get off saying that. They're not remotely three apples. Well, the, apple- car- the cartoon says that. Yeah, if you live in a mushroom, you're not three apples high. What kind of mushrooms are they? This whole, In fact, this whole show doesn't make sense. I reject this whole show as commentary now, on the political struggle of, of, of East versus West or whatever. I realize that a lot of this stuff's really stretching it, but you have to admit there's some, there's some weirdness there. There is something to be said about the fact that Papa Smurf wears red. He's the, he's the leader. Everyone else wears white. They live in a commune. I mean, it, there is something to it, I think. I like the idea that they're all identified by their function. That seems very communist to me. Like, if we all... But in, in, to be honest, like, in today's society, if you just identified people by their function, like, you wouldn't be getting much for your money. You'd be like, hey, guy that kind of works at a video store, sometimes Smurf. Like, yeah, hey McDonald's yeah. hamburger serving Smurf. Hey, no, no, I'm the other McDonald's hamburger serving. There's actually yeah, fifty thousand exactly. of us. Hey Smurf, who doesn't have to work because his parents have money? How's it going? <laughs> That's Smurfette. She never had a job. I guess she didn't need to, or maybe she did have a job, but we didn't see well, that. Well, the real life Smurfettes hold out for that guy who has the money. They don't. Smurfette doesn't need a job. She's like her function speaks for itself. Like, we're a commune full of only guys, all right? Nobody has to ask, what's the chick for? <laughs> yeah, well, but then again, in the defense of the it's not a communist thing, they also have people who, who are have named after their function, but they serve no real function, like Lazy Smurf. There's a Lazy Smurf. Well, there's also what a, a Vanity do? Smurf. Like, what does he do? Yeah. Oh, yeah, she, wasn't she the... No, wait. That no, was, Vanity no, Smurf's was, a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a guy with a mirror. That's yeah. right. Yeah. He's in no danger of hooking up with Smurfette, but yeah. he's a man. Is it possible that Nessie murdered five streetwalkers before returning to Loch Ness? Using undiscovered evidence, we've pieced together the events leading up to the first murder. Hello, dearie, show you a good time for a quid. For the wife and for free. Oh, gents, don't you want a girl to keep you warm tonight? Oh, my. You are a big one now, aren't you? Come on, darling. Aren't you in a hurry? Now, will you be careful? Not so rough. Wait a minute. So anyway, I think uh, Sean has a, a another communist slash socialist theory that he wanted to get into. That, well, I think that isn't Smurfs, but something else. It's not as deeply involved as the Smurf thing, but I do think there are a lot of 
There are a lot of socialist undercurrents in Star Trek. Not the original Star Trek where they were they were really on top of things. But I mean, later on in the next generation, it got a little mamby-pamby. And, uh, and specifically, I think, there, somewhere along the line in Star Trek, they started deciding that there was no money. Like early in the days, they never said there was or wasn't money. They never said what their system was. They just, they, you know, they were working towards an ideal. But sometime around the next generation, they started saying... There's no money, and we all just we all just work because we want to work, and it's very smurfy in that way. It's like you know we want to better ourselves, and we all just work on a spaceship because we want to explore, and we don't get paid, and it's cool. And they never really yeah. explain how that works in a society. But I well, they give each other gifts and things, right? But what I mean I is, are you telling me that Starfleet just builds a spaceship and puts a bunch of guys on it, shoots it off into space, and that's it? No paychecks, no nothing. Just a replicator that makes all their meals for no reason all the time, and they don't. There's no reward except the the promotion system. No, I think this is, and and this is good evidence here. On the next generation, they have this holodeck, and the holodeck is a place where you go, and it creates these holograms of different places, different things, and you can do basically role playing on this 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 plane that it creates where it creates characters that you can interact with and women and, and costumes and, and whatever, anywhere you want to go, anything you want to do happens on the holodeck. And basically once a season on the next generation, the holodeck would malfunction and kill like eight guys. Like it just happened. <laughs> Something would go horribly wrong in the holodeck. It would threaten the whole ship. Somebody would die. They would like every in every episode. They'd be like, "This isn't supposed to happen because it's like a game. It's supposed to be something simple. Like if you were playing PlayStation and all of a sudden PlayStation shot a bullet out at you and you died, that would be the equivalent of what's happening every year." on the holodeck on the Enterprise. And no one ever shuts it down. No one ever does any maintenance. No one ever comes around to look at what's going on. You would think like the Star Trek equivalent of Dateline NBC. You would, would yeah, be, like, or you would think there'd be some kind of tribunal <laughs> or something. Like, where's the oversight committee? They never have those on Star Trek. Like, where's yeah, the people the that come in? holodeck manufacturers are paying off some senators somewhere. Yeah, well, like, you never have a guy who's like, whoa, before this holodeck comes back online, we're going to find out why it shot that guy. We're going to find out how it created a guy that took over the whole ship. Because in the worst holodeck episode ever, there's like a thing where they're playing Sherlock Holmes and Geordi like says to the computer, why don't you make an opponent capable of defeating Data? And so what does it do? It actually creates someone who has the power to like take over the ship's functions and control the computer and all this stuff. He's like, oh, I shouldn't have phrased it that way. It's making someone who can stop data. It's like, it's not a magical genie machine. You know, For just because you told the computer to make someone that can stop data, that doesn't mean it can magically create that. Like, there's no safeguards. I mean, if that were true, if that were true, every situation they run into, they're like, run into that Q guy or whatever who gives them problems. Like, they can just go run into a holodeck room, create someone that can defeat Q. That can destroy (laughs) universe. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Like, I go into my computer, I try to delete an email. The email comes back and says, are you sure you want to delete that email? But Jordy's like, tells the computer to create a, a, a simulation that can destroy the entire spaceship, and the computer's totally on board. Doesn't even question. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, you never even once. Homicidal theme? Never even <laughs> once. I can't even post a blog without nine. Sorry, we encountered an unexpected error on MySpace. But Jordy can just be like, create a supervillain out of thin air. And like, okay. 
No problem. But by contrast, what I should mention here is in the magical socialist society of Star Trek The Next Generation, the holodeck is completely free, completely supplied by the government. And thank you very much, government. Now, when we move forward to Deep Space Nine, they're on the space station and the Ferengi are controlling the holodecks and they have their hollow suites and everything revolves around paying them money. All of a sudden, there's never an episode of Deep Space Nine where the hollow suites break down and nearly destroy the station, ever. But it happens all the time on The Next Generation. And the only difference is you have to pay to use the hollow suite. They understand its importance and therefore... It's sort of like I go on Juno and I'm trying to read my email and I click on something and all of a sudden it directs me to some page that says, oh, you might have viruses. You need to download this thing and I got to close out everything and, re and relaunch it. Why? Because Juno's free. They don't care. You know, and that's the way it works in Star Trek 2. It's like the, the second that you start paying for something, all of a sudden that crap's gone. And that's what happens with the holodecks. I'm confused, though. How are they paying for this if they don't have money? Well, that's where it gets... We're kind of shoddy. Well, there is a system of money in in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, other it's, people have money, just not Starfleet. They have to, they got to wrangle some cash if they want to play with the Ferengi. But the point is that the federally funded hollow decks that were completely free kill a guy like every tenth guy dead. That's the hollow decks. But the hollow suites have a guarantee of quality because you pay money. Because it's market controlled, they'll go down yeah. to the hollow suite. If the hollow the suite broke down, like the whole Ferengi alliance would come down to see what's going on with it. Their whole like army corps of engineers would be down there to fix it the next day because they might lose some money. So you're saying this is this is a pro-capitalist argument on the part of Star yeah, Trek? Yeah, well, I, yeah, exactly. I think that they're showing a socialist society that doesn't essentially work because it's not until you introduce capitalism that you have quality control. Interesting. Are there a lot of transporter accidents, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. Not yeah. only do people dissolve sometimes <laughs> on the transporters, but they had a whole episode where a guy gets caught in the middle of, like, quote-unquote, transporter space or something that doesn't even make sense. Like, it's always going wrong. And they, the one time they cloned Riker, and then they just had a second Riker walking around. In the original series, they split Captain Kirk in two. Oh, yeah. That was really bad. They split him up, and there was a good Kirk and a bad Kirk. I like how it actually splits up. And then on they had an evil lines. space poodle. <laughs> they made an evil space poodle. It was awful. <laughs> uh, I forgot about the space poodle. But then, then in the movie, they, they, they turned two people into, like, you know, quivering piles of goo. I know. Because nobody paid good money for that transporter. That's all I'm saying. Government funded, good enough for government work <laughs> yeah, transporter. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But no, it's all free. Jump on board. Come to Crazy Town where everything costs nothing. And that's where everything started to go horribly awry. But that's just the so way of it. This is, this is libertarian. That's what that's where you're, you're coming down on is this. Is it coming into a libertarian thing? Well, I think I it, it definitely has to be like, I think it's a pro-capitalism thing. I think definitely Star Trek shows us why. Because I think we... Pro-market. I think we start to see this in the real world a little bit. I mean, like I said, like Juno and MySpace, there's a lot of stuff that you can do for free, but then it doesn't work. And you're mad because you can't complain to anybody because you didn't pay money for for it and i think that's like the ultimate expression of that it's like one day everything will be free and that's what will happen one day you'll just get on the transport pad and it'll melt you and there yeah. won't be anybody to complain to because like we've been letting you transport well, for free because forever. you'll be melted well i mean the, your family like look man 
Of course there's going to be. We're going to break a few eggs here and there when making this omelet. It's free <laughs> transport. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's you... still the safest method of travel. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly so, what so, so is So is Star Trek communist or is it not? I think Star Trek The Next Generation is socialist. I don't think the original Star Trek was communist at all. But the point is, I think Star Trek The Next Generation, I think, was trying to promote a socialist agenda. And I think it actually made an argument against it. I think it became a treatise against socialism because they were like, here's what would happen. I was like, okay, so and that, that must there's have no been religion. intentional no on their part. Has, I mean, they didn't accidentally write that things would break down. So so you wonder if subconsciously yeah, they, they underst- didn't want you to think of I think it was subconscious because I don't believe – I think they wrote those things because they just weren't good writers and they ran out of ideas. But I think it started to represent the opposite opinion. Okay. Well, there's there's another Star Trek conspiracy theory that I think Brooks has. Since we're, since we're going on and on about Star Trek tonight, again – Since we're on Star Trek, <laughs> let's try to get back on yeah. topic. Well, this is something that I found when, when Sean told me about his theory. I was going to research it a little bit, see if I can find something. And I didn't find anything about that, but I did find something that I thought was weird and kind of interesting about the uh, the 47 conspiracy. Have you heard of this? Uh, no. No. Okay. Well, anyway, from Wikipedia, I was able to gather the following. There exists a 47 society, an outgrowth of a movement started at Pomona College in California, which propagates the belief that the number 47 occurs in nature with noticeably higher frequency than other natural numbers. In nature or in Star Trek? In Well, this, the society says in nature. Now, Here's is this scientifically connection. proven or is this just something like a bunch this of guys is just something. This is something that – what now? Well, you know, you know how like when we were in college, we had secret societies, and we came up. with I don't think this is scientifically proven. I think I think this is just something they came up with, kind of tongue in cheek, and then they formed a society over it at this college. Now, this guy named Joe Minoski graduated from Pomona College, and he went on to become one of the story writers of Star Trek: The Next Generation. This is where he gets introduced to Star Trek, and he, and this is in quotes, infected the other Star Trek writers with it. And as a result, the number 47, or its reverse, 74, occurs in some way or another in almost every single episode of the program and its spinoffs, which are, of course, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. There's a website called Star Trek The 47 Conspiracy, and uh, I'll put a link to that on our site, tv8mydinner.com, so you can check it out. The site has uh, tons and tons of specific examples of this. But I've pulled a few of the more interesting or insidious ones that I will give to you now. So see what you think of these. From the Next Generation, from Season 1, Episode 25, an episode which is ironically entitled Conspiracy. It is stated that Starfleet Code 47 means Captain's Eyes Only. That's one where those little things infected them through their necks. (laughs) So you know the episode. I'm familiar with it. I've seen it 47 times. <laughs> Creepy. Just as dun, a side dun, note, dun. those little infected things were early versions of the Borg. They they reimagined them after that episode. Well, early versions of the Dominion yeah. also. But I mean, they, right. they, they sorry everybody, you know, said in the commentaries and things <laughs> that they, that was their going to be their their Borg type creature, but then they decided to to rework them. But but go ahead. I apologize to right. the audience. Well, from episode. Episode 143 from Season 6, Data is unconscious for 47 seconds. 
From episode 152 of season 6, Stephen Hawking's wins a round of poker with four sevens. Bum, bum, bum. I like that one. Awesome. 47 people have been killed in the holodeck. <laughs> throughout the course of the show from episode 155 season 7 I think this one's funny Data notes that the poem he is reading includes a 47 minute period of silence I think we should recite that poem on the show <laughs> yeah so we'll just do a whole episode from episode 79 season 4 now this is a sneaky one try to follow at one point the computer warns that there are 4 minutes and 17 seconds remaining until life support will be lost the next time the computer reports, it says that there are 3 minutes and 30 seconds remaining. This suggests that 47 seconds elapsed between the reports. Coincidence? Bum bum bum. Here are some from Voyager. From Episode 1, Season 1, and Greg probably knows this, the USS Voyager's registry number is NCC 74447. Right? No, no, no. no. Seven four six five six. But also note that the last three digits, six five six, six five six times the speed of light is warp seven, which in effect makes the number seven four seven. Uh, bum, I bum, think bum. you're. I Lord. think you're reaching there. That's all. Hey, I, I didn't make this up. This is a little number twenty-three to me. <laughs> I didn't make this up. From episode twenty, the number forty-seven. From episode twenty, season two, and this is another example of a sneaky one. Kim's apartment is four G. G being the seventh letter of the alphabet. In a similar vein from episode 34, season two, the doctor instructs Kess. Is that how you say it? Kess? Yeah, that's right. Kess. <laughs> how else would you say Kess? Well, I don't know. It's Star Trek talk. Isn't it K-E-S? Yes. <laughs> anyway, the doctor instructs... I, mean, I don't know Star Trek, but isn't that... Well, I've never even seen Voyager. I I just don't want to sound like, a you know, the doofus that doesn't know how to pronounce the Star Trek names. The Star Trek instructs Kess to set the Delta band of the hollow emitter to 7 megahertz. Delta is, of course, Delta the fourth letter the of the Greek letter. alphabet. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. How come none of these references happen in episode 47? I've, I'm sure there was one, but it's probably... Most of the things on the site are like... You know, there's the number 47 is written on a panel as they walk down a hall or something. But I just picked out the ones I thought were kind of cool. From episode 70, season 4, this one's really sneaky. It stated that the whole integrity of Tom and, I don't know how to pronounce this, it's B-Elana. Belana. Belana. Okay, the whole integrity of... Again, just say it phonetically. (laughs) Just say it phonetically, Okay. (laughs) It is stated that the whole integrity of Tom and Bellana's shuttle is at 53%, which means if you do the math, 47% of their whole integrity has been lost. You gotta wonder if some of this stuff's coincidence or if, or if they're really trying to put it in there. Well, I'm he, sure they're working it in. Here's two from Deep Space Nine. There's, I only picked two from this one, but to me, these are the most telling, alright? From episode 79, season 4 of that series, here's a bunch of more Star Trek names. Quark, Rom, Nog, and Odo? Yeah, you got or Odo. Odo. O-D-O, right? It's Jeez. Odo. <laughs> they Jaw, travel man. back to Roswell. <laughs> you know, fan. Back... Well, I'm nerd. not. I'm not. Travel back to Roswell. But it's 19... like O-D-O. How would it? <laughs> it's O. <laughs> it could be Otto. <laughs> You're just not cool at all, man. So, how'd you get on this show? <laughs> <laughs> you know anything about Star Trek, man? God. You ain't even. Brooks, how do we, what do we, uh, John, what do we hire this guy for? <laughs> What'd you play with your Han Solo doll? <laughs> yeah. It's 
complete right. Darth Vader. From episode 79, season four of, of Deep Space Nine, Quark, Rom, Nog, and Odo travel back to Roswell, 1947, the time of the famous Roswell incident. Of course, we're all familiar with the Roswell UFO incident, which happened in New Mexico in July of 1947. I think that's an interesting one because, you know, yeah, it's but, in but space. What if, what if the Roswell thing happened in 1949 when they still written the episode? Well, maybe 49 would be the number they put into everything. I'm saying there's a possible connection. That's all I'm saying. It's an interesting coincidence. From episode 123 of season 5, Cisco quotes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Which is a biblical quote from 2 Timothy 4-7. Coincidence? Or is it much more than that? As an adjunct to this, it is also interesting to note that it, it is said that Jesus performed 47 miracles. Awesome. Which one of those miracles was Star Trek The Next Generation? <laughs> I believe that was number, number Was that number 12. 47 and then just out? <laughs> yeah, it's like, that. this is my shining moment. I am done. <laughs> Actually, it's more like I'm almost out of juice. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, uh, I took one look at TNG and said, yeah, I'd, I'd better quit. <laughs> just bam, bam, shim, shim, hollow deck. Done. <laughs> to tie this uh, number sorry, into, into Sean's theory, we, we need only look at history. January 31st, 1947, the communists take power in Poland, which leads Harry Truman to implement the Truman Doctrine to fight the spread of communism in May of that very same year. So go ahead and tear apart my theories. I know you've been you've been anxiously waiting all this time. No, oh, okay. It's you know it's it's quite possible that you know that that the guy you know infected the other writers and thought this is something funny we can put in the. Lord knows it wouldn't put anything else funny in the script. This reminds me of like we when we did a radio serial. Man, Greg was there and and we did it. But in every episode, we wanted to to either say the phrase "I'm not wearing any pants" or have someone just make a reference to pants. So I'm not sure if that ties into your conspiracy, but I we did that. Too. So so these guys did it, and they did it for like 12 years. <laughs> well, but, we didn't get to do a show for 12 years. We probably would have gotten tired of pants after 12 years instead of 10 episodes. But I'm just saying, you know, 47 is pretty pretty random thing. Like you could work that in. It's hard to write an episode around someone talking about pants. <laughs> so now that would be a conspiracy. Like if I'll, you know, Captain Picard every once in a while yeah, walk out of his quarters without his pants on. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. Now that happens in Inter- engage. That happens in Enterprise now. You know, people are losing their pants and you know. Man, that. people are just losing their clothes <laughs> left and right on that Enterprise show. I don't even understand. I guess really Star Trek may be about the evolution of the zipper. <laughs> Because <laughs> the next generation, they always seem to keep their clothes on. But Enterprise, in those early years, man, Starfleet's biggest concern was just keeping keeping some pants on the kids. That's well, before they invented those one-piece unitard things yeah. that, that everyone had to wear. Yeah. We get a skin tight. Well, maybe that's, what the, that's what, maybe the, what the footies were about. <laughs> like, look, man, this will make it easier. And as a side note, let's stop greasing them up after every mission. That's probably a bad idea. I don't see how that's helping anything. Maybe this all ties into to my theory that the Lord of the Rings is pot smoker propaganda. Is that possible? Is it possible that it ties in, or is it possible that it's pot smoker propaganda? Right, so let's just say it's possible that I just went on a completely separate tangent, and we moved on from there. Well, we had discussed this, too, prior to the show, <clears throat> and big nerd that I am— you researched I, it and I, found out that I, I also was it. not the only person. 
And yeah, no, of course there's, well, we know that you're not the only person at a theory. Cause I remember being in the theater and of course, you know, they make the little reference, like the, the, you know, the hobbits. Well, he talks about how awesome their weed is. Everyone starts giggling. All right. All that aside though, but I really think there's, there's an argument to be made here because we'll like take it. the hobbits as a race. What are their traits? They're easygoing. They're not at all ambitious. They like to party. They're constantly hungry. They are always smoking what they call the long bottom leaf. Gandalf calls it the finest weed around. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, they smoke this thing for two seconds. And the next thing you know, they're blowing smoke rings that look like like ships stuff. I mean, come on. Maybe that's not all magic. And they have Maybe a very satisfied look on their face, too. When yeah, the that hobbits stuff. just assume Gandalf's a wizard. I mean, maybe he's just going around and he's giving all them all a bunch of weed. And he's shooting off some fireworks, taking off. That's what it looks like to me on this. I mean, nothing happens. He's like, oh, happy birthday. Everybody smokes up a little bit. He shoots up a bunch of fireworks and then he's gone. <laughs> he comes back later and he's like all paranoid about stuff. Yeah, that's true. Like, where, where, where's the ring? What'd you do? Is it secret? Is it safe? You gotta leave right now. And, and does even Frodo question it? No, of course. If someone comes in, you're talking a bunch of paranoid crap. The next thing you know, if you're a big pothead, is you start buying into it. Like, oh, I gotta pack a bag right now. I could be gone tonight. <laughs> he never even asked, what are you talking about? He's gone. You're right. You're right. I gotta hide the ring. I gotta go. Oh, they know who I am. They know. They know what I did. Oh my God! I'm gonna leave Hobbiton forever. He's <laughs> gone. You know, by the time he comes down, he's already at the prancing pony, running <laughs> off into the woods. Gandalf tells him he's gonna meet him there, and he completely flakes out, much totally. like a pot smoker would. Oh, dude, man, I'm sorry. I had some other stuff going on. I'm totally. I started talking to a moth about some stuff, and I started <laughs> riding a giant eagle. <laughs> crazy <laughs> right I was nuts <laughs> yeah that's the hobbit that, that whole story doesn't make any sense and who wants to fight the hobbits in the story there's Saruman who is basically just a big logging interest and all he's doing <laughs> is trying to fight the hemp and then who's who's Sauron he's the big fascist regime and the fascists never like the weed because the weed promotes peace you dig what I'm saying it's all about that. The whole story from start to finish. Because basically what happens, people are like, oh, Gandalf's really magical. It's like, okay, break down what Gandalf does for you. And you go, Gandalf shows up and we all smoke this pipe and then he shoots some fireworks. And then we start running through the mountains and we start riding a bunch <laughs> of eagles and stuff. It's great. <laughs> Every adventure with Gandalf has someone returning with a yarn of this fashion. Man, it it's also awesome. clear to me now. These goblins came in. They were riding wolves. We climbed the trees. Eagles took us. It was dude turned to bear. It was great. I think I'm right here. I don't care what I don't care what anyone says. I think I'm totally right. They actually, I, I looked this up for Sean, and and in the. Uh, in the prologue to the Lord of the Rings, the book, uh, Tolkien himself actually says that it's it's tobacco <laughs> because they were even in the in that time, there were a lot of people, you know, Back making that days. connection. And he's like, no, 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 it's tobacco. It's tobacco. But then yeah, he whatever. may have just been saying that to satisfy the squares. Yeah, yeah. It's weed, man. It's totally weed. Oh, What's wrong on. with it? It's the hobbits weed. eat like eight, eight meals a day. 
<laughs> Nobody does that. I don't care how fat you are. <laughs> Yes. They never that's probably, what, uh, that's probably what all that green stuff around the Hobbiton is, man. They just grow the grass out of weed. That'd be the greatest. Yeah, they they, <laughs> they freaking live in the ground. They're like, look, I don't care about you guys. Mama just dig a hole right there and build a house in the hole. Yeah, you know, they, they stay out of the right affairs of the world and they just hang out. You know, they don't bother anybody. You know, yeah, temple, typical potheads, you know. I'm totally about it, yeah. And that's fine. But that, that's what it's about. So there you have it, folks. Well, if those of you out there have a theory on this, I would love to hear it. Yeah, if uh, there's an impossible rebuttal to this nonsense, I will engage it. Feedback at tv8mydinner.com is the email address where you can reach us on that sort of – that level. Whatever any of our the things we've is. discussed tonight, if, if you have a, a, a strong theory about it, I, we'll share it. If, if it's good, we'll share it. I predict we'll get 47 emails about this. The 47th email wins a prize. Yeah. I won't say what it is because we don't have yeah. any prizes yet. But, but we'll find something. Prize. Is this the way it happened? Was Jack the Ripper, in fact, a 60-foot sea serpent from Scotland? Did I take this job for a quick buck? We may never know the answer to these questions. All right. Well, I think we've put this topic to bed either yes. way or run it into the ground, however yeah. you want to say it. But no I do, we do have another segment to go into that we will only be doing this once a month. But every month from now on, I would like to dub a new real-life Johnny drama. Johnny drama, Eddie Burns. Congratulations, Johnny. Drama, I have drama. There is the man. There is the legend. But only one who walks a certain career path has earned the right to become known as a real-life Johnny Drama. Thank you, God. Victory! Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Did, did, did you find us a Johnny, Johnny Drama this time, Sean? I found us a Johnny Drama this month, and he's a good one. He's a keeper. The, this Johnny Drama for uh, August 2007 will be Jeffrey Meek. And I know what everybody out there is saying is, who's Jeffrey Meek? But you'd, you'd know him if you saw him. That's what makes him a great Johnny drama. You may not remember Meek from the Remo Williams TV pilot, which a lot of people don't even believe was real, but it happened. I remember that. It, it only aired one time, and it Just co-starred like Roddy McDowell. <laughs> Roddy McDowell was Chune in the Remo Williams TV pilot. But it happened. But you'd recognize Jeffrey Meek if you saw him on the street. Definitely if you saw him on TV. He's done Miami Vice. He's been in episodes of The Pretender, Profile, Law and Order. And who could forget his portrayal of Vlad the Impaler on Hercules' Legendary Journeys? Perhaps best known for the Raven TV movie and subsequent short-lived TV series, Meek also starred in the single-season Mortal Kombat TV series as both Raiden and Shao Kahn. He's doing soaps these days, but he's got a couple of episodes of Charmed under his belt. And like Johnny Drama in the show, he's done a couple of episodes of Pacific Blue. So congratulations, Jeffrey Meek. You're this month's real-life Johnny Drama. Yay. All right. Kudos now I gotta go you, look him up and see what he looks like. IMDB him, man, because as soon as you IMDB him, you're gonna go that guy. I think I know who it is. 
I think that's what makes him a real Johnny Drama man. No, no shame in it at all. You are a real Johnny Drama. My I'm gonna friend. look him up. I think he was a Max Headroom too. If it's the same guy, that is possible. Show. Well, I tell it's you what, possible. I'll put a link to that on the website too. A link to his IMDb. So, so you have lots of links on this week's entry to uh, to yeah. research if you want to look into take this. Take a look. We need to honor our Johnny Dramas because this is not an insult at all. A guy who works his whole life in Hollywood and has been on everything—that's his—that's his job. That's something to be proud hey, of. Hey, man, you're a survivor. You're you're a Hollywood survivor. So email us. Tell us you're a what's his name. Yeah, Meek if stories? you have an idea, yeah, Jeffrey Meek, if you have a Jeffrey Meek story, or if you think, if you have a real-life Johnny drama in mind, email us on that. We would certainly like to hear from you. Are we going to close out with a story tonight? We should close out with a story, especially since we're going to be at Dragon Con this year. I think I have a Dragon Con story. I guess we should mention that. We will TV ate my dinner. The the crew of, of the show will be at Dragon Con this year, which is a major... It is a major movie, TV, sci-fi, fantasy genre convention that happens in Atlanta every year. It's and the it's big, uh, coming up um, just next week, Labor Day. Um, it will be Labor Day weekend, much to my wife's chagrin. I went through, you know, they have their walk of fame there. And if you take someone's picture, you have to give them $50. It's like a like a tax for the for the no longer famous. And I'm walking through there with my video camera. Because apparently if you walk through your video camera, no one cares. And I'm filming everybody, and finally, Lorenzo Lamas is there, the renegade. And I sit on Lorenzo, and I'm filming him for a while because I'm fascinated by the fact that no one's at his table. Like, he's he's getting zero autographs. And I'm filming him, and finally, his eyes look over, and I can see he sees me filming him. And I had to make a hasty retreat. I was afraid I might get crescent kicked. Yeah, I was saying, he was about he to gave get, me a look like get dude. the crap smacked out of you by Renegade, man. How awesome is that? <laughs> well, that's what everyone's been ribbing me ever since. It's like Sean, like of all the fights you've ever wanted to start and couldn't get off the ground, you tell me you backed down from the Lorenzo because win or lose, that's a story. No kidding, man. That's worth the price of admission right there, and you'd have it on tape too. Yeah, I, I blew it. I blew, I guess I felt bad for him. Because I used to like Renegade. Uh, it does seem like they've tried to diversify their 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 star base, uh, as far as that's concerned. You know, the because there were a lot of people from Happy Days. Or Potsy was from Happy Days yeah. last year. And I and love the, Potsy. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it's a weird thing when you run into Potsy at the Dragon Con. You don't want to see Potsy rolling with a bunch of Klingons. So that that's the guy you need to start fighting with. I mean, that's a great story. And you get, you know, I got in a fist fight with Potsy from Happy Days at Dragon Con. Is, you know. <laughs> no, you got to leave the at Dragon Con part out. It's much cooler if you don't say that. Well, it's just a good story, too, because cause the name Potsy is like, you know, Potsy. oh, yeah, I got, I got, you know, I kicked Potsy's ass. <laughs> I cold cocked Potsy. Bring it. Who could say that? It's like, yeah, but you backed away from the renegade. He's Reno Reigns, man. He can noodle kick me. He's a snake eater. Don't want to mess with that guy. All right. Well, you can you can email us at feedback at feedback at tv8mydinner.com. You can always see episodes old and new at tv8mydinner.com. And you can reach me or look at my publishing stuff through www.darkcrazy.com. And those are the those are the plugs. You can also get us at uh, myspace.com slash tv8mydinner. That's a new edition that we have this week. And you can learn about me and Sean on my on 
MySpace as well, because we'll be linked there. Well, but Brooks, that's right. You can springboard into our actual MySpace accounts there, and you can see the cool new account, which is as close as you'll get to Brooks. That's right, because yeah. Brooks doesn't believe in MySpace. No, no, that's that's the subject for another episode. We'll do that some other time. But but anyway, uh, thanks for listening. My name's Brooks. I'm Sean. I'm Greg. Okay, well we'll see you guys next week, and uh, actually next week is is Dragon Con, and we're going to be posting our Zombie Survival Guide Special Edition that week, so that's something to look forward to. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.